Good morning. I was uh, reading this morning in Wired magazine on my iPad, and yes, that is a shameless grasp for relevance, that you can now buy jewellery on Etsy.com that a lady makes by combing the hair off her pussycat and rolling it into balls and a necklace. I just thought someone would be interested. Actually, I was also reading uh, uh, this morning in the Ancon booklet that apparently my wife and I have five children. <laughs> now, this may be a fair call. Once you get to about four kids, you stop saying, where are Susanna and Rose? And you go, one, two, three, four. And it is possible we've forgotten one somewhere. I'm just saying. What should you expect from being Christian in the world? This, by the way, is not just a question for Christians. It's a question for those who are considering uh, whether they will choose to follow the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What ought you to expect from life in the world as a Christian? Let me read you a letter. This is the approach I have taken with everyone brought before me on the charge of being Christian. I have asked them in person if they are Christians and if they admit it, I repeat the question a second and a third time with a warning for the sanction awaiting them. If they persist, I order them to be led away for execution. For whatever the nature of their admission, I am convinced that their stubbornness and unshakable obstinacy should not go unpunished. This is a real letter. Written by a real person, Pliny, the governor of Pontus and Bithynia, to a real person, the emperor Trajan of Rome about real Christians, about 113 AD, not so long away from the writing of Revelation, possibly around about 95 AD, and this is Trajan's reply. You have followed the correct course, my favoured one, in your investigation of the cases of persons charged with being Christians. For it is impossible to construct a universal principle applied as a fixed standard. These people should not be hunted down. But if they are brought before you and the charge of being Christian is proven, they must be punished. What should we expect from life as a Christian in the world? 
The Roman emperors ruled for about 500 years, starting with Augustus, uh, then Octavian in 27 BC. They expanded the Republic of Rome's territory once it became an empire, and by about AD 200, uh, the vast empire stretched from Syria to Spain and from Britain to Egypt. They even conquered parts of Scotland. Networks of roads connected rich and vibrant cities filled with beautiful public buildings. A shared Greco-Roman culture linked people, goods and ideas. And scholars estimate that at the height of the Roman Empire, its population had somewhere between 60 and 70 million, called the low count thesis, and about 100 million. According to the smallest possible estimate of 55 million inhabitants, the Roman Empire still constituted the most populous Western political entity until the mid-19th century and remained unsurpassed on a global scale throughout the entire first millennium. And the empire ushered in an economic and a social revolution that changed the face of the Roman world and therefore the world as a whole. Service uh, to the empire and to the emperor, not just birth and social status became the key to advancement. By the time of the emperor Trajan in the late first century AD, the Roman Empire encompassed the whole of the Mediterranean. Every part of the shore of that sea was Roman. In fact, the Roman Empire was so large that it takes five whole departments in the British Museum to hold its artifacts. Unsurprisingly, if you were a Roman, you were rather pleased with how the Roman Empire had come along. It had quite a bit of sparkle, really. It had done very well. It wasn't the biggest but it was certainly the most successful of the ancient empires and the Romans ascribed their success to their relationship with the gods and Rome had many, many gods. Almost as many apparently as I have children. They had inherited and Latinized the entire Greek pantheon so Zeus became Jupiter and Ares, the god of war, became Mars and Hermes became Mercury and so on. But they also kind of collected gods like trophies. Each time they conquered a new country, they borrowed their gods just in case they'd been missing something. So, for example, Isis from Egypt and Mithras from Persia. In fact, you may know the story of Paul entering Athens and looking around and seeing the many, many, many gods. In Athens, uh, which was a Greco-Roman city by that stage, uh, it was a plague And the citizens of Athens were so worried that that plague had come about because they had upset the wrong God that in fact they prayed over a herd of sheep and sent them throughout the city so it looked like New Zealand. And as the sheep went to each spot, wherever they stopped to eat in front of a shrine, they bowed down before that shrine in case that God was leading them to see that they had been ignoring him and In at least one or two spots, the sheep stopped, as sheep strangely will, where there were no shrines, to eat grass, even though it was obviously not sacred grass. And there the Greeks, the Athenians, erected statues, plinths, shrines to an unknown god, 
just in case. The relationship that Rome had between them and their gods was what was called the Pax Diorum, the peace of the gods. And in this peace, the emperor was the chief representative and intermediary. He was called the Pontifex Maximus. And to break this peace by refusing to worship the gods was actually an act of treason against your nation for fear that if the gods were insulted by just one person, they might destroy the entire city or the empire as a whole. And Christians, well, Christians were a problem because they didn't worship these many, many gods. And I've got to say, as someone who was once a very passionate atheist, I get a little bit of a chuckle out of the irony that the early Christians were charged with being atheists by Rome. Apparently, one God just isn't enough to be a true theist. There's a famous account of Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna, being executed for this reason at age 70. When he was brought before him, the proconsul, that is the Roman official, asked if he were Polycarp, and when he confessed that he was, the proconsul tried to persuade him to recant, saying, have respect for your age which is funny because I've never been an older person who was less stubborn than a younger person, but that's another story. And other such things as they're accustomed to say. He said, swear by the genius of Caesar. Repent and say, away with the atheists. And so Polycarp, this 70-year-old man, which was an extremely advanced age in those days, solemnly looked at the whole crowd gathered around him in the stadium, watching them watch him about to be fed to the lions, gestured towards them with his hand and said, away with the atheists. It was in Asia Minor that a new modification of this Roman religion began. It wasn't unusual for a Roman emperor to try to legitimize his rule by declaring his previous ancestors uh, who were also emperors, gods in their absence because once you don't see a person and watch them pick their nose anymore, their idea of their deity becomes that much more believable. In Asia though, there was a tendency early on to recognize the Roman emperors still alive as gods themselves. After all, they had so much power and might, they could not really be separated from the gods in any reasonable sense, so it seemed wise to worship them. And Domitian, Domitian, who was the emperor around about the time that Revelation began, uh, would sign his official letters with the title Dominus et Dues, which is translated Lord and God. Ephesians, uh, sorry, the city of Ephesus was granted by Domitius uh, the right to uh, build a temple to him. Uh, So they built a great temple and became called the Neocorus, the temple warden. But they weren't the first. That the first city to build a temple to uh, to Domitian, I should say, was in fact Pergamum, about whom we'll be hearing today. And failing to worship the emperor was again treasonous, an assault on the empire. Can I suggest that before you feel smug 
in the security of your Western postmodern worldview and sophistication, thinking that this is a primitive worldview, let me suggest that it's not. When Clive Hamilton, who's the director of the Australia Institute and not a Christian, suggested recently that we had an unsubstantiated, unfounded religion of the pursuit of sustained economic growth, he was attacked in a number of conservative papers as a danger to the country. In numerous places of the world today, if you choose to become a Christian, your own family may execute you. Certainly your neighbours will. Because you threaten to bring down upon them the wrath of the spirits, of the gods, of Allah. And perhaps on a different note, it may surprise you to know that Sam Harris, one of the famous four horsemen of the new atheists, argues that people with dangerous religious beliefs should probably be killed. So we have an imperial cult everywhere in Asia. In general, country by country, religions are illegal outside their country of of origin, except for the imperial cult, and except for one other exception, and that is Judaism. Why Judaism? Why is it an exception to this rule? Do we have any ancient historians here in the crowd? Just making sure my dates won't be checked. No, really, Roman Empire swallowed Judea around about uh, 63 BC and it became a client kingdom, a vassal kingdom. Then about 6 AD, Augustus removed the king and made Judea a province of Rome. But Judea was still in a good relationship. In 37 BC, Herod, who was not himself a Jew, but an Edomite who worshipped as a Jew, allied himself with Rome against the Parthian Empire to the east of Judea. And as a reward for Herod's alliance, Rome made Herod king of the Jews and made Judaism what's called a religio licitia, a licensed religion. But it wasn't that simple. Rome was not a power against which you wanted to rebel. Who here has heard the story of Spartacus? A few of you. The Roman Empire had around about 30 million to 60 million slaves. Spartacus led a a rebellion of the slaves called the Third Servile Rebellion and was opposed by the famous Roman general Crassus. He was so upset that in defeating Spartacus' forces, he had to pursue a group of 6,000 ex-slaves into the mountains that he decided to make an example of them. And he crucified every one of the 6,000 along a 240-kilometer stretch of road between Capua and Rome. You didn't rebel against Rome. But in 66 AD, Judea revolted again, and in September AD 70, the great temple of Jerusalem was burned to the ground with the body of about 118,000 Jewish men lying in front of it. One of the final measures in relation to the temple was the creation of a new tax. You see, every Jewish male above a certain age had had to pay a certain portion of his income every year 
towards the temple to maintain the temple. Having burned down the temple, the Romans decided to grind a little bit of salt in the wound. And they created instead a new tax, a tax called the Fiscus Judaicus, which meant that every Jewish male had to pay a certain proportion of their income, not to the upkeep of the temple of their God, but to the temple of the emperor in Rome. Every year. And in response, in this kind of Faustian bargain, they were free to worship. Free to be Jews wherever they went. Do you get a sense maybe of what it might have been like to be Christian in the first century AD? You see, Christians had three options. They could recant their faith. And Pliny, that governor who wrote that letter, interviewed some who'd done this 20 years before under pressure of the society within which they lived. Some, on the other hand, did not recant, but confessed Christ and suffered. As Pliny also tells us happened, they were executed. He talks of two slave women who were called by the church ministers, whom he tortured for a while so we could understand Christianity better. Or there was a third option, a middle way. And that was to join those who rendered a kind of a verbal witness to the name of their community, to being Christians, but actually denied the power and the meaningfulness of the counter-definitions of the Christian community by encouraging Christians to compromise, to have a foot in each camp, to light some incense to the emperor and go to church on the Lord's Day. And it's into this context that we read these three letters to churches in the cities of Smyrna, Pergamum, and Thyatira. You may have noticed, by the way, that they follow a fairly similar pattern in each one. Uh, Each one of these letters is written, firstly, to the angel of the church. Uh, A few of you have asked me already, what does this mean? And I have to tell you that even scholars aren't entirely sure. That is, uh, an angel can be a human messenger. Angelos means uh, just messenger. Uh, So it could be a human messenger. Uh, So this was uh, being written to to messengers who would then carry the letters around in that great tool that I described to you from Ephesus all the way around back to Laodicea. It, It could be talking about an angel. An angel being a representative of the work of the Spirit over the church. Remember, uh, the Holy Spirit is described as the seven spirits in this case, which is describing uh, his functional role in caring totally for these seven churches. Uh, Or, as it is sometimes used, the angel could simply mean God's presence. Secondly, there is a description of Jesus Christ, a title given to him. And all of these titles, by the way, have drawn from what you've already read in Revelation chapter 1 where his titles are then broken apart. And in each of the letters, a title of Jesus is cited in order to describe an element of his power or his character, which is most relevant to the situation of the church at that point. Then Jesus describes what he knows. Let's have a look, for example. The letter to Smyrna. 
to the letter of the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last, the one <coughs> who was dead and came to life, says, I know your tribulation and poverty, yet you are rich. In verse 13 to Pergamum, I know where you live. In verse 19, I know your works. Jesus knows the suffering of his people. He knows their struggles. He knows their endurance. He knows the details of their lives. He who has an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus knows you. And there are times in our lives when we go through dark periods when we wonder if anyone truly knows us. Or we fear perhaps that if they did know us, then they would no longer care for us. And yet here we see a description of the Lord God of all, Jesus Christ. And he knows where you are at. He knows where you live. He knows your works and your endurance, your struggles. He knows your failures. And yet he still loves you. Jesus knows. And in those dark nights of the soul, you need to remember that promise that Jesus knows. That he is not ignorant of your pain. That he is not uncompassionate towards your brokenness. That he does not ache with your grieving. Jesus knows I know your tribulation and your poverty, yet you are rich. Jesus knows something that they do not know as well. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Smyrna is one of those Christian communities which is suffering particularly from its relationship with the Jews. You see, the very first Christians were all Jews. And they continued to identify themselves with Judaism at least some level up to about AD 70. But after a period, uh, there was a gap growing between the two communities. As the Jews realized that many of their number were becoming Christians, that they believed something that the Jews did not believe, that Jesus Christ was God himself and ought to be worshipped. And Jews hated the fact that their Jewish Christian sisters and brothers, did not have to pay the tax anymore. They did not have to prop up with their own money the pagan cult of Rome. But they also knew that because they'd become Christian, they no longer had the protection of the religio licentia, Sometimes when we hate ourselves, as I suspect many of those first Jews who did not become Christians did, they hated themselves because they gave of their own money to support a God whom they despised and they did so to keep themselves safe. And so I do not doubt, given the heroes of the Old Testament who set a counterexample, I do not doubt for a moment that they hated themselves. And so often when you hate yourself, The easiest way is just to project that hatred onto another. I know the slander, says Jesus, of those who say they are Jews and are not. They are not Jews because true Jews follow Jesus. For he is the promised one of Israel. 
And those who follow him are in fact true Jews, the true Israel. He is the one who is the culmination of all the promises to all the children of Abraham, beginning with Abraham himself. They are not true Jews. Instead, they work for Satan, for the evil one, by oppressing God's people. And this oppression, Jesus warns, is not going to get easier. It is about to get worse. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will have affliction for 10 days. And you might think, well, 10 days. I could probably handle that. 10 days. That's, that's like, that's Stuvac. <laughs> 10 days of affliction. I know what that means. But in the Roman system, you were thrown in jail and scourged and tortured prior to execution. And can I suggest that if you're still trying to make the parallel with exams, you're being melodramatic. You're executed. Killed. Does Jesus say that he will stop this? Intervene? Bring peace and prosperity? No, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. And for us in the West, that is almost the most incongruous grouping of words. Uh, Peter Singer, a noted, famous ethicist, has, has observed of our Western culture that there are two great values that we have. Two great values. Freedom of choice and freedom from suffering. Why is it that our culture has pursued a path of aborting 95% of babies detected with Down syndrome? Because we cannot imagine that life with suffering at its core could possibly be worth living. And we are, interestingly enough, the first culture that has thought this, and hopefully the last. For there are things worse than suffering and death. And there are things that can conquer them. Jesus says, the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life, that is the one with the power of resurrection, promises them, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. And in verse 11, the victor will never be harmed by the second death. Jesus says, be faithful even unto death for I am the one with the keys to the grave. Then there is a letter to Pergamum. Uh, I know where you live, Jesus begins. Uh, in a gangster movie, this would be a threat, wouldn't it? I know where you live. I know where your children go to school. I know where you have your coffee in the morning. But here, here it's actually a sign of compassion. Uh, you see, uh, Pergamum, uh, it's like saying someone who lives in Dapto. I know where you live. Sorry, I meant Kalara. <laughs> Pergamon was the, uh, the Washington of Asia Minor, the seat of the Roman governor, and also the seat of the pagan cults. It was actually the first city to build a temple to a Roman ruler. It was the center of the cults of Asclepius, whose serpent symbol became the crest for the city, and of Zeus and Athene and Demeter and Dionysius. And with such an intensity of religious activity, it would have been impossible for Christians to remain hidden to escape detection. 
<clears throat> you see, at, at a purely commercial level, if you were to pursue any kind of profession, you had to join a guild, and Pergamon was the center of guilds. Uh, to join one of these guilds, you were expected to go through an initiation ceremony, and every time you entered the room to perform something similar, uh, usually whereby you paid obeisance, you lit some incense to another god. If you would not do this, you could not join the guild. If you would not join the guild, you could not practice that craft or profession. And Jesus speaks of the way in which some groups within the church had reacted to that. Some small groups followed the teaching of the prophet Balaam and the Nicolaitans, both of whom seemed to be different groups which urged compromise, which said, look, it's not that bad, surely. A little bit of incense, you're just doing it with your hand, you're not doing it with your heart, does it really matter? Surely, surely the ability to keep on going, to enter into the guilds in order to evangelize them, share the gospel with them, surely that was worth you know, a little bit of foolery. Surely that's okay. And after all, how will you support your family? How will you give to the church, for example, if you don't just bend things a little bit around the edges? But Jesus says that I have these things against you, that you have these among you. Repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with a word sword of my mouth. Jesus says he comes to bring judgment upon them. In the, the context of their suffering and their pain, Jesus doesn't say what you might expect. Look, that's okay. I don't want you to be hurt. Just give way a little bit, a bend like the reed, little grasshopper. Jesus doesn't say that. But most of them stood firm, even when Antipas, one of their members, was executed publicly. They resisted the move to internal compromise, just the way in which they continue to reject the external cults. And Jesus promised that he will give them the hidden manna, uh, which is a strange set of words. But what I think it means is he's saying that there is a food which sustains. Because remember, food gives life. It supplies life. There is a special food which is waiting for those at death, which will sustain them into new life. He will give them the, the white stone in a judicial circumstance, a black stone into the, indicated you were guilty from the judge, a white stone indicated you were acquitted, but also a white stone, I think, in a mar- marvelous mixing of metaphors, was often uh, what was given out to guests as an entry point into a dinner or into the, the games. And Jesus says, I give you a white stone with a new name that you might enter into my kingdom to know you have a sure pass into the new world I am bringing. To Thyatira, Jesus says, I know your perseverance. And yet he condemns them again, like the other churches, for giving space, for allowing to operate in their midst a group of teachers involved in various cultic practices. Jezebel, this prophetess, teaches and deceives my slaves, he says, to commit sexual immorality. It was common in that culture for part of your religious expression to be involved in temple prostitution. And perhaps this is part of that Greek movement where when Christianity entered new cultures, it often got bent out of shape. And particularly the Greeks had a view that what you did with your body didn't matter. 
So perhaps that these Christians have been persuaded that it's okay to have a little bit of temple prostitution on the side because that doesn't touch your soul. But of course, God is not like the Greeks who believe the body in the physical world is something from which we ought to escape. God loves what he has made. He is an author of beauty and of wonder. He made your bodies and your bodies are you and what you do in your bodies matters. And he says that the one who resists these things, the victor will rule, will inherit the kingdom. And this is the meaning of the morning star from Numbers 24, that you will exercise power and authority for the promise of God is not that one day we will float around in 90s with silver discs on our head in the clouds and eat Philadelphia cream cheese, but rather that one day we will rule over a new creation a good creation where I suspect that, yes, there will be perfect point breaks. And yes, there will be chocolate gateau that you have to cut with a sword. And yes, there will be friendships and love and joy and walks in the morning. But probably not Xbox. No, sorry, that's not true. That's just me projecting a personal preference. And so you can imagine the pressures upon these churches, the the Jewish Christians attempting to escape persecution by identifying themselves with the synagogues and becoming Jews once more. The uh, Gentile Christians tempted to compromise with the trade guild cults and even the imperial cults. And in the midst of this suffering, what do we make of this? And there are a few things we just need to observe quickly. The first thing is this. We do know from this passage what the origin of suffering is. God is not the author of suffering. Satan is. There is a spiritual reality behind suffering in the world. And do not be too quick to reject this. If you have been brought up as I once was to believe in a purely metaphysically materialist reality... For we are the first generation who think that our sophistication and our technology and our industrialization put paid to the spiritual world. And it's interesting that the country that has most experimented with this China, with the eradication of religion in the, in the pursuit of technology, is even now experiencing a renaissance of spirituality and a resurgence of Christianity. There is a spiritual reality behind the world in which we live. There is a spiritual reality through this world in which we live. Everything is physical. Everything is spiritual. And because of this spiritual reality, the world is full of suffering. And God will not change this until Jesus returns. Why? Because God is patient He's patient with us. He's patient with you. You see, humans are both victims of suffering who need to be rescued, but we are also perpetrators of suffering who need to be judged. And Jesus can interpose himself in that judgment and rescue people from suffering without judging them, for he takes that judgment. But there are many millions in the world yet who have not had Jesus stand in for their condemnation. And so God cannot yet rescue them from their suffering without also condemning them in their cause of suffering. And so he waits and he is patient until as many as possible are saved. 
But there's also not just general suffering in the world. There is also persecution for those who follow Jesus. And Jesus said this would happen. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, Christians, you are not of this world. Because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you too. Christians, what ought you to expect from this life? Suffering. And hardship. I'm constantly confronted with people who once called themselves Christians but have pulled the plug in it because it just got too hard. It became too hard to make their marriages work even though they were struggling with them. It became too hard to resist the temptations of sexual immorality. It became too hard to be honest at work. It became too hard. And they're surprised because surely the Christian life is not meant to be hard because we have a God in heaven. Jesus says... If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. The Christian life is hard. If you're a Christian, you should know this. The Christian life is hard. If you are considering following Jesus, the Christian life is hard. Jesus does not lighten the load in this passage. He calls those who are suffering hardship and persecution to purify themselves yet further, to cast out from themselves compromise that they might suffer more. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian and martyr, said, when Christ calls a person, he bids him come and die. And Jesus says, If we would follow him, we must die daily. Take up your cross daily and follow me. How dare God ask this of you? How dare God command you to come and die? He dares because of the cross. You see, if you had done something, if I had done something which merits God's saving work in our lives, then maybe we could say, God, look, I, I've, I've bought my way into this part way. I've contributed something here. I've played a role. And frankly, that means that there, is, there are some things you cannot ask me. Okay, up to here, yes, give to my church, sure. Okay, maybe, maybe be sexually pure until marriage. I can go that far, but die? That is too much. There is a limit to how much you can ask. But because God sent his son to die on the cross for you, because he carried the load of your sin, because he paid all the price, and because he promises you everything, God does not believe that there is any limit to what he can ask you to do. There is no limit to what Jesus can ask of you. 
for he died for you on the cross. But with that comes a promise. And we're going to skip very briefly to the end of Revelation to see that promise. How do you sustain this life of obeying Jesus, of responding to his limitless requests? I take it that this is why the vision of Revelation is given to us in 21 verse 1. Let me read it to you. This is what God has in store for those who overcome. For those who are faithful even unto death. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea no longer existed. The sea stands for chaos and unpredictability. I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. This is God's people come to be with God forever in perfect intimacy. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look! God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with him. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying and pain will exist no longer. Because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Right, because these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. History is certain, friends. I will give water as a gift to the thirsty from the spring of life. The victor will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my son. As. What ought you to expect from the Christian life? Hardship. Suffering. Persecution. And then life everlasting. Life as it is really meant to be.